study strategy over the years, and achieve the spirit of a warrior. Today is victory over yourself of yesterday. Tomorrow is your victory over lesser men. Miyamoto Musashi You want to fight? We'll give you a fight. Welcome to Fightcast. Hi, thanks for joining me for this, the second episode of Fightcast. Uh, This episode, I want to cast my net really, really wide. I want to go for a very, very, very big topic, because my ambition apparently knows no bounds. Um... The format's going to keep changing up these early episodes, so I hope you keep bearing with me. And if you're still here after hearing the first episode, more power to you. Thank you very much. I uh, hope you stick with me on this crazy ride I'm doing. Anyway, uh, going to get right into it. This is the spear, the long and short of the pointy stick. Okay, so one of the reasons I want to talk about the spear is sort of because of how ubiquitous a weapon it is. If you think about it, if you think about any culture that has ever gone to war, think about, I don't know, uh, depictions you've seen in film, in history books, anything like that, carvings on the sides of cliffs and into temples, art we've made since time immemorial, you're going to see people with spears. Now, it's not hard to imagine how ever since we felt the need to defend ourselves from something or make aggression on our fellow humans as well, it's not hard to see how the spear developed. Um, I, I'm i going to speak in very broad strokes here, so any anthropologists or human history, trying to rack my mind for the word for that right now. Anyway, but if this is a subject of your study, I'd like to hear from you. I really would. Um, with sort of which weapon came first. I always ask myself, which weapon came first? Is it the knife? Is it the simple axe? I mean... Probably it was just a rock or a piece of the environment that we broke off, but when when was it exactly that we started purpose-making weapons? It, when our weapons became purpose-made, when we set out to alter something in order to either defend ourselves from aggression, which is one interpretation, or how do I get a killing point further out from myself towards that soft meat prey animal over there? Because I haven't eaten in three weeks, and that needs to change right now. Um, If you think about it, the weapon system as it has evolved throughout human history is kind of just an exercise in gaining distance. We want the pointy end of whatever's going to go into our thing be way over there, so that the thing can be way over there, and whatever we want dead is way over there. And we're over here, because presumably here is safer than way over there. So, it, again, it, it, it's not hard to see how this developed, about how the second... I, I'm guessing, I, I'm going to concede that the first weapon was probably the knife. You take a simple flint stone, chip it against a rock in the right way if you try enough times. Again, I imagine this is, was one of those mimetics things that once it happened, it kind of caught on pretty quick. But there you go. You got a sharpened piece of flint in your hand. You got a rudiments of a knife. But that boar is scary, that bear is scary, that mammoth is scary, and we don't want to be close to it. So what do we do? Put that knife on a stick. And the spear was born. So you have the spear, 
starting out most likely with flint tips, and very likely these were hunting spears first and foremost. I, I think that if I'm th- if I'm thinking about early man correctly, uh, and I'm not saying that I'm an expert on this particular subject, of course, but if I'm thinking about early man correctly, I'm thinking that all of his tools and all of the weapons that many of those tools became had to be dual purpose. You had to be able to defend yourself from other humans just as well as you could go and hunt game. Now, I I use the defense from other humans in kind of a preemptive, preemptive, I guess, rebuttal to the instinct to say how human beings will always go for the darker aspects of our nature, I guess. I hope that makes sense. Um, I believe that weapons are not inherently good or bad, but uh, as with anything, they can have... I I hesitate to say a positive impact, but I think that sometimes that the negative impacts that they have on their environment can be justifiable, and other times not. Now, um, I could go on and on about that particular subject. I could, I could do an entire episode on the ethics of combat and the ethics of... Um, lethal force and self-defense, and I'd like to. Believe me, I would like to. Uh, But that's not this episode, so I'm going to get back to what I'm talking about. Now, the spear was our first best attempt at getting the deadly, I guess, if you want to call it a warhead, I mean, every time I say warhead, I think that, you know, there you go, you get the Minuteman warheads of the Cold War, warheads on ICBMs and missiles and that kind of thing. That's the first thing we think of when we think of warhead, but really, warhead probably started to just mean any head you put on your spear or your arrows, which are, by the way, I'm going to get to arrows in a second because they tie into this. But the warhead is what you put on the business end to do more damage. That makes that, that makes more sense, especially if these are not only, if, if we're evolving certain centuries down the line and we're not just talking about hunting implements that have been turned on a fellow humans anymore. We're talking about purpose-made weapons to be used against other humans. Again, there's probably no first one out there. There's probably no first culture that did this. It, As, you, as I'm going to detail, it, it springs up in every single culture on the planet. Now, the spear was subject to the same limitations of its time that any weapon system was. Now, uh... Let's go over the advantages of a basic spear weapon system. You got both hands on that spear and you got the business end pointed out in front of you. Now, what does this do? First, it puts distance, like I said, between you and the thing that you want gone or the thing you want to go away. Now, you can thrust this in a manner where you take both your hands and you just sort of thrust the spear forward while keeping your grip static on the on the shaft of the spear. It was very likely that default method for any when I'm talking about this early period of the spear I'm probably going to be talking about every culture went through this every single one Um, I don't know of a single culture that has engaged in warfare in human history and hasn't had a spear and hasn't had a sword or some kind of sword like equivalent this owes to the fact that great minds think alike I think that if that's if that's proving them any maxim it's that but um you have your standard spear thrust where you just sort of take a step forward maybe and then it's it's brutally simple. You stick the pointy end forward, you know, with all of your might. And there you go. 
You have put a bunch of these people in a row, and you have the makings of modern-day armies. That's kind of the first step. You have, uh, once the people realized that we work better when we fight together and we stay together and we can protect each other while also killing the other people, it was a quantum leap, I guess, in weapons technology. Now, as I said, it was dependent on whatever age it happened to reside in, but it kept getting sophisticated. This is what gets me so much. The story I'm talking about starts in the caveman era um, from time literally immemorial to just about the turn of the 20th century. Now, I've talked about, well, I've talked in the first episode about Hardcore History, Dan Carlin's podcast, and about how I'm I'm just absolutely gaga about that about that podcast. I can't get enough of it. It's it's such a visceral look at history. Now, the first series of episodes of his I started listening to was his on World War 1 and it's called Blueprint for Armageddon by the way. It's it's just fantastic. You need to listen to it. You, you you need you need to pause this podcast, listen to that, then come back. That's how good it is. Anyway, you have German lancers on horseback wearing gas masks and the Stahlhelm, which is the helmet that the Wehrmacht is going to use in the Second World War, you have this figure seated on a horse with a lance. Now, a lance, as I'm going to get into later, is a spear that's been put on a horse. The spear becomes so many things based on the kind of situations that it's in. Even in World War One, we were still finding uses for it. Again, it turns out that a single ca- galloping cavalryman can take down a surprising number of people who are lower than him whilst on a horse using that lance. Now, so so when I'm talking about the uses of the spear, it, it, it it's not necessarily things that just go back to antiquity or the Middle Ages or anything. We were using this up until a relatively recent time, so please keep that in mind as you listen now. Bronze Age comes along, you get better spearheads. Iron Age comes along, get better spearheads. Maybe you're moving into more settled areas. You can use trees instead of just branches. You can literally alter the wood in such a way, maybe add some extra metal onto it. I don't know. But you start to see the spear becoming a little bit more sophisticated. Now, spearheads are usually... Any and all variation of spearhead is going to go on sort of a leaf shape or a triangle. Now, I'm, I'm holding up my fingers just so I can visualize this. Now, but to, but take your thumb and index finger of either hand so that you're making little pistols in either hand. Now, bring those up so that you're making sort of a, I guess, a spades kind of kind of figure. But if you're that that's that's like a it's a sort of a leaf shape. But that leaf shape was what most spearheads were for the many first centuries of its existence. Now, you have that adapting as the centuries go by into possibly something more slender, something a little sharper, something a little bit more angled. As iron gives way to steel, we're able to shape the spearhead and add accessories to it that make it awesome in different uses. Now, I should... Actually, step back a little bit because one of the things I want to talk about, one of the most revolutionary models, I guess, it's it's, it's like the spear is like you know the, the Chevy spear, and 
the roughly, I don't know, BC 200 spear model was one of the greats. Now, I should amend that. Not BC 200, actually. BC around BC 600. What you have is a spear that could make an entire battle strategy work. Now, what this battle strategy was, was the phalanx. Many people think of the phalanx as, and rightly so in some cases, because as soon as Alexander and his Macedonians got a, hand, got a hold of it, it, I, I should say, I should amend that as well, because I know that I'm going to get some angry history emails, so I should say that probably it was Philip of Macedon who deserves to get the majority of the credit for this, but the phalanx in earlier Greek towns, way, be, way, way, way before Philip, you have the hoplite. Now, the hoplite is what made the Battle of Thermopylae famous. It's what made the Battle of Marathon famous. It was the standard unit of Greek heavy infantry. Now, what these guys were, were, again, everybody has seemed to come to, con- to the conclusion that we're a little bit taller than our recent ancestors, and I do mean recent in terms of human development. But they were very likely on a diet that we can no longer replicate with modern food processing and the like. Now, these guys were probably incredibly strong, built like linebackers, every single one of them. And what they wore was, if they were rich, breastplates, greaves, uh, forearm armor of bronze. Now, bronze... Bronze is an interesting material for armor because it bends very well. Now, you'd think that armor isn't so great if it bends very well, but really, if you're accepting the shock of a blow from, say, an arrow, which had bronze tips as well and very broad heads, you can be relatively safe that from that arrow because the breastplate will cave in a little bit. It'll spread the energy out and it'll bend the breastplate, not penetrate you. Now, you also had underneath this and... If you were a middling kind of income soldier, because the hoplites, depending on the city-state that they came from, they could be rich hoplites or they could not be so rich hoplites. These were people who were upstanding men of the citizenry. Uh, Many of them could have owned businesses. They could have been nobles. They could have been not so nobles. But they were, at least in city-states like Athens or, if I'm thinking correctly... Thebes, in any case, um, in some city-states, you had to supply all of your own stuff. Uh, You're going to (laughs) go basically into the army and make up the army's materiel losses because centralization of government hadn't got to such a point where they could supply the entire army. Now, if you were a middling-income kind of infantryman in in a Greek city-state, you would have something called a lamellar. Now, lamellar is fantastic material because it's medieval Kevlar. You have sort of these wood, maybe a thin sheet of mail, which is a great way to save material on armor whilst providing some small protection. You have linen and mail and leather, and if you could get it any kind of metal, you would sandwich all these things together with a kind of a with a kind of a um, a tree resin glue, if I remember correctly. And it held everything together, it solidified, and you had a medieval 
late anti- early to mid antiquity Kevlar armor. Now, I mentioned this when I'm talking about the spear because it's it's relevant to talk about the armor systems that are developed in response to certain weapon systems like the spear. Now, the spear at this point, I'm looking at uh, a hoplite spear right now on my uh, notes, and these spears were about seven feet long with a spear head probably made out of bronze or iron at about eight to ten inches, and I have read reports that some spearheads were about a foot long, a whole foot long. (coughs) Now, I don't doubt that that could be the truth, because when I say that this made an entire battle strategy work, what it was was ranks of men, we're talking about a hundred men in a block here, all pressed up against each other, standing in ranks. Now, What the ranks did was, when you closed with the enemy, they collapsed in on each other. So, you had guys very, very close to each other, stacked up against the guy in their front. Now, if these units were well-trained, like the Spartans legendarily were, they can move as one unit, make contact with their shields, or their hoplons, which is where we get the term hoplite from, and make contact with the enemy and keep walking. This was the vital part of the strategy is that you had a mass of men sometimes who would sing hymns while walking into battle. Walking into battle if you're the Spartans. You run because you got a bunch of nervous energy if you're a bunch of the, uh, these other people. But no, these Spartans, their discipline was legendary apparently. No, I'm sorry. Playing into the myth, I guess, a little bit. But you would walk forward as one unit, make contact with the enemy, and whilst you walked forward and every single guy behind you walked forward. Imagine you're the front guy in a rank like this. The fact that I've got 100 men behind me all pushing at the same time. Multiply that muscle power by... Uh, I can't even begin to guess off the top of my head the n- number of newtons of force that can be generated by a bunch of people working together at the same time. It's really... It's it's an underestimated feat of human ingenuity, the idea of working together in synchronicity. Now, um, a bunch of these guys moving together at the same time, again, depending on how well you're disciplined, you know, people on the flanks might run. Bad stuff might happen either way. But you walk forward against the enemy and push against them with the shields. Now, if you're, say, the Persian army at Thermopylae and you come to battle with a light javelin, which is another thing I'll talk about in a little bit, and wicker shields and a cheap Lamalar armor yourself and not much else because you're used to fighting in the mountains of Pakistan and the canyons of Iran and a whole bunch of these other places that this multinational empire drew its soldiers from, you're not going to be prepared for men shoving what amounts to bronze-covered cutting boards against you with the weight of a a hundred other men behind him, at the same time, what's this going to do to ranks of men with wicker wicker shields and the lightest of arms? It's going to crush them to death. Now, I should say that they're crushed and they're prickled to death, because where the spear comes in in this battle strategy is the, the the Greek spear and shield combination can be wielded a couple of different ways, one of which is sort of an underhand, where I'm holding the spear like 
if I'm holding the spear on the ground and the spearhead is pointing up and then I just level the spearhead out and point it at you, that I don't change my grip at all. That's the underhanded method. I can shove the spear forward with my uh, with my bicep and my hips and sort of punch it forward a little bit. I can do that. Or I can shift into an overhand grip. Now, the overhand grip is what allowed the phalanx to crush an entire rank of enemies to death whilst stabbing them from above at the same time. This is what you would do when your other hand is fully engaged in this shoulder-to-shoulder effort to crush men to death. It's amazing when I thought about that, but what this is in the Greek world is the beginnings of the weapon system. You had any film that you're going to see with depictions of hoplites, even the less historically accurate ones, are going to be accurate in the fact that they had a short arming sword called a ziphos, a spear, and a shield. This is how warfare was conducted for centuries in Greece. Now, if we skip ahead a little bit to around 200 BC or so, and I'm using BC because it, I have to admit, out of sheer habit, I know that I'm not, I'm not going to get too much into it in this podcast, but I am a secularist and I'm not huge into, um, I, I, I don't necessarily buy into before Christ um, as a method of dating history. So, but I mean, I grew up with it. It's kind of ingrained in my speech at this point. So I won't say forgive me, but whatever. Anyway, <laughs> Getting, getting back to the weapon uh, the weapon at hand. Um, skip ahead a couple hundred years, and you have the Roman army using something akin to what those light, lightly armed and lightly armored Persian troops at Thermopylae were carrying, which is a javelin. Now, as I'm going to get into a lot more, what you call a spear differentiates... Uh, is different depending on the situation. Now, if it's on a horse, it's a lance, especially if the head is curved a certain way, or not curved, but pointed as more of being a spike, as allowing you to ride somebody down and pull your, pull your, um, I've forgotten the word for it now, um, <laughs> pull your lance out, there we are. Uh, if you pull your lance out, you can get onto the next guy relatively fast. Now, when you take a spear and you hurl it through the air, it becomes something else. It becomes a javelin. Now, a javelin is one of those weapons where it has lasted until the point where it's still in our Olympic Games. We still give gold medals for javelin throwers. Now, it's not hard to see that before bows and arrows really became powerful, what we had was an attempt to have a weapon that served both as a upfront melee weapon, you could use it as a regular spear. You could parry with it to a certain extent. You could stab with it. You could use it as any as, as any spear had been used for the past millennia or so. Now, what made the pilum, and as this weapon was called, different, and that's P-I-L-U-M, and if I have some Latin speakers listening to this who say, no, you should pronounce it pilum, that's a good thing to get used to right about now. I'm going to butcher a lot of languages, um, and I hope you forgive me for that, and I'm going to try to learn as I go. Now, the the pilum had 
an intentionally cheap design. And this is what was so... This is what... It's so Roman. (laughs) It is so Roman to make a weapon that your enemy won't be able to use against you if they found it. Because standard Roman battle doctrine, especially if you're against, say, many of these Celtic tribes in Gaul, which is modern-day France, such as the Averni, uh, led by a guy named Vercingetorix, which is... He's a character in and of himself. I hope Dan Carlin does a hardcore history episode on him, because I don't think I could do him justice. But you, if you're a Roman legionary, and you're with a bunch of your other dudes who are very well trained and very well drilled, and I'll have to post a video of uh, a modern, I think it's a stage combat instructor, recreating ancient Roman drill techniques, um, different shield formations and the like. They were still carrying shields. They were called the scutum. Um, they looked sort of like modern SWAT team riot shields do today. They're slightly curving out. They're like a curved outward conca- concave rectangle, I guess, if that makes sense. Now, the pilum was employed at the very outset of battle. You would have a couple of volleys of guys who would throw these things. Now, you're not stupid. You know that the people that you're fighting are armed a certain way. They're carrying wooden shields. Now, what does... The spearhead do when it sinks into these wooden shields, it bends due to the weight of the shaft. So what you have is a weapon that is punched through this barbarian's or Germanic tribesman's wooden shield and is now bent to make that shield kind of useless. It's it's stuck in there. You can't get it out, at least not immediately. You've got a battle to fight. You have to make a quick decision. You have to either toss this shield away or try to wrench it out or... Again, the spear is useless. You can't use it against the guy. You can't use it against the people who have just employed it against you because it's now useless. Again, this is so Roman, and I love this about it. Now, that was the epitome of spear technology in the West until Rome fell. Then you have, during the Middle Ages, uh, a couple of different places. And I'm going to leave Europe for a second here, because I'm going to go into a country or a, or a culture which I know a little bit about. I'm not going to claim to be an expert, at least not for a long, long time. Um, and any of you who are listening who actually are experts on this subject, please weigh in. But um, one of the first weapons that I studied when I took up the martial arts again at... Uh, I was in, I must have been 13 or so. Now, when I took them up again, when I moved back to Minnesota here, I, when I finally settled on a place, and back then it was called the Chikara Dojo, which taught classical Japanese swordsmanship, I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I thought I was going to pick up a sword. I thought at least, you know, a sword was going to be involved at some point. Um, some point soon, because after it all, it is, it is a sword about... It, it, it is a school about swordsmanship. Now, um, to my surprise, a spear was put in my hand. Now, as I learned uh, through many, many, many hours of study at this particular subject, the Japanese spear system, uh, using a weapon that the Japanese called the Yari, Y-A-R-I, this was something that was clearly made to give people basic fighting ability on the battlefield. If, if you think about it, I have to go a little bit into samurai battle doctrine for a while. Now, you what you would have in any Japanese feudal army 
is very likely a core of samurai, and these are these are these are the knights. These are the equivalent of the knights. I mean, knight and samurai, and what place that they had in their society is more or less equivalent. Now, you had a core of knights operating this mass of fighting men that were not professional soldiers. What these were called were ashigaru. Now. Um, that's A S H I G A R U. I'm gonna stop smell. <laughs> I'm gonna stop spelling things. I'm just gonna try to include the things that I'm talking about in the show notes. Now, these ashigaru were often taking, and this is very likely during the Sengoku era, which is the era where ja- Japan was comprised of warring city states that fought on and off with each other for about a hundred years. Sengoku means the age of the country at war. It, I, I can't imagine having a civil war that long in your country's history, like of that duration. But you needed to raise an army quickly. You needed to raise reserve troops quickly. There was one way to do it. That was to put a spear in the hands of a peasant. It could be a hacked-off bit of bamboo, actually. It doesn't even need to be anything that specific. All you need is that sharp, pointy stick that is... Put the bad thing away from you. And so you can put the pointy bit in the bad thing over there. You know, it's not hard to figure. It's in our DNA almost. You know, if we find a makeshift tool to use against an aggressor at some point, if it's long, it's got a broom handle, we're going to use it as a spear, you know? It's it's logical to us. But anyway... So, so these yari, uh, the well-made ones, are fascinating to look at. Their blades are, and I'm going to include this in the show notes, their blades are a very slender leaf shape. But if you look at the cross-section of it, it doesn't look like a spike. It doesn't look like anything symmetrical. It looks like sort of a, a flat on the bottom, a flat on the bottom rounded bladed spike. And I'm I'm just butchering kind of des- describing this, but it looks like something that crawls along the ground, if that makes any sense, because this one half of this is flat. It's just a flat blade, but the other is rounded up on the top. Now, what this would serve to make is sort of a crescent moon-shaped hole if you were to stab it into something. That's sort of the cross-section of the blade we're talking about. Now, I've seen these things punch through uh, stacks of wood. I've seen spearheads that I'm told can penetrate car doors. Um, I've yet to see that one myself, but these were elegantly designed um, instruments of death, you know? It, it, it's, again, g- going back to why I'm doing the series of podcasts in the first place, it, 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 there's, there's just something grimly beautiful about a lot of this stuff, and there's no other way I can really describe it, but perhaps on this journey we can find out together. Now, the Japanese spears fighting system, very basic. Um, I might even include a picture, uh, a video of me doing the first spear kata from this. Um, <laughs> we had one kata, or um, I guess, uh, what's the best equivalent tra- translation I can find? Uh, a kata is basically a demonstration of technique within a, and I don't use this word lightly, choreographed form. It is a prescribed set of moves with the weapon 
to demonstrate a particular technique. Yes, there we go. Go with that definition. Now, we had one kata. Many, many martial arts systems, at least stemming from the Japanese tradition, um, they if you are studying a particular weapon, like say with the sword, with some schools, there is eight kata or 14 kata or 32 kata, um, depending on the variations of technique that they uh, want to portray. Now, we had one with the spear because one was all you needed. It was a simple block, a simple thrust, a simple strike with the butt end of the spear called an ishizuki because they would often put a weighted metal ball or a spike or something so that you can swing that spear around and use it as a melee weapon on the other axis of motion, because a spear, being a staff, is ultimately versatile. You have two ends. You have two ends that you could put different things on, and people did. People put all kinds of things on the other end from the business end of the spear. Now, this system, so I'm told and so I was taught, was designed to give to peasants who had no, almost no fighting experience whatsoever. Teach this to them for a couple of hours, put them on the battlefield, and watch them actually do well. It, 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 it's very brilliant seeing as how some... It, I don't know if it's a specifically Japanese thing in my opinion, but being able to boil down a concept to such, to such purity, to such, I guess, I want to say... To break it down to only its important details and in such a way that you can learn it is fascinating to me. Anyway, this this spear was used to great effect all the way up until the end of the 19th century. Um, I shouldn't say all the way up until the end of the 19th century, more like at least to the latter half of the 19th century. You still had troops in Japan's final civil war for when the... Imperial faction fought the pro-shogunate faction, what was called the Boshin War. Little conflict in scale, but very important in terms of Japanese history. It could have gone either way. You could still see Japan closed off from the rest of the world almost, and still employing samurai. It's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thought experiment for alternate history. But this the, the spear saw service throughout almost that entire period. It was versatile in such a way that it took only the smallest of modifications to turn it into a completely new weapon system. One of the variants of the spear that I studied um, at the Chikara Dojo, what is now the Kaishin Dojo in West St. Paul, you should go to it, it's great, was that you could take a spear and put two cross blades on the side of it. This is what the Japanese called the Jumonji Yari, or the Magari Yari. Now, supposedly developed by a Zen Buddhist monk who got the idea when he saw the moon reflected in some water. A far more likely explanation is that he s- sat down seriously and thought about the problem of how do, how do how does a spear better parry another spear or another pole arm, such as a naginata, which is almost like a short sword blade at the end of a pole, which is a very neat weapon in and of itself. Now, when you put two blades on the side of the spearhead, it changes everything. You can control and trap that spearhead before it's ever even begun thrusting. You can sh- you can literally shove and sort of sweep the enemy's weapon out of the way in order to get at his good bits. Not only that, but you have, if you run up the shaft of his spear, you have blades on the side of yours, and if he doesn't, you can cut his hands. 
if you cut his hands, he can't wield his weapon anymore. You might as well not even worry about him after that point. What's he going to do, bleed on you? Now, what this also allowed is for fascinating attacks, and I I had such great fun with this when we uh, sparred in this particular system, is the number of targets now available to you. Because if you... Sh- if you thrust your spearhead past somebody and your spear has blades on the side of it, you can very easily circle back around to the Achilles tendon or the ACL or any number of important muscle groups that are just behind where the stuff is protected. Now, you take that out and you can make them a much less effective fighter and then finish them off. It's an absolutely brilliant take on the spear that changes every dynamic about it. And I'd love to see a, a well-choreographed spear fight using Jumonji Yari, but I've yet to see one, unfortunately. Um, a great fight involving Yari in the Japanese style is to be found in the film that Star Wars is based on called The Hidden Fortress by Akira Kurosawa. Now, to Toshiro Mifune, who is one of my favorite actors of all time and closest thing I probably have to a role model, this guy wields it expertly. Uh, now, it's it's the fight that the Obi-Wan-Darth Vader fight from A New Hope is based on. It, it, uh, I, can't, I don't want to give it away. It's, it's, it, it's just such a great fight. And if, and if you want to see a good example of that, please check out the movie The Hidden Fortress. Um, you'll know it when you see it, I promise you. I always try to, I always try to include films somewhere along the line so that if people want to see a rough idea of what some of these things are talking about and if we can't provide a video for it then I want there to be at least some way to see that so I'm going to probably gush about the films that I like involving a certain weapon system at some point now if you hop over to mainland China you have something a little bit different in modern Wushu the spear in that weapon system is highly recognizable it's always a waxwood shaft with a uh, small but slender steel spearhead, and you have this mane of horsehair that's been dyed red around it. Now, I thought about this a lot, and I, I I wonder to what effect that this purpose had during combat, but I've been told that the horsehair is there as a distraction technique, as a way to keep their eyes, as our eyes are naturally drawn to certain colors, like red, for instance. Our eyes are naturally drawn to the color red. There's something visceral about it, I think, that naturally distracts our eye and our subconscious from whatever we're supposed to be doing. That this horsehair was used to facilitate that, to get them distracted to the point where you can find a way around their defense into their vital organs. I'd really like to do some kind of scientific experiment on that, because I'm thinking about it honestly, and part of me is happy that this that the horsehair is there because if i'm facing that i want to know where that spearhead is and if and if my subconscious and my eyes are following that red spearhead so much the better i'm thinking you know but in any case i'm sure that there's a way to measure that but i can't quite think of it at the time the the style that this is used in is it can't be more different from the japanese you see very Well, the Japanese have a method of thrusting the spear through their sort of guide hand. You have one hand that's on the rear end of the spear. You have one hand that's further towards the head. And the one that's further towards the head is sort of the guide hand. And the the other hand powers the spear through this guide hand 
so that it slides in at least one hand of the grip. The Chinese use this at the same time, but in a much faster and much more, I have to, I have to admit, and honestly, spellbindingly precise and fast manner. If you see wushu competitions ever of people wielding this weapon, they can move unbelievably fast with it, and you can you can even see you can you can see without the aid of a high speed camera, you can see the waxwood shaft bending, and they use this bend in the shaft during the combat. You can see this. The film that you need to see, I think, to to see this demonstrated is Hero with Jet Li and Donnie Yen. It's the fight at the very beginning with the nameless hero, who obviously is the protagonist of the film, and a character named Sky, played by Donnie Yen. And he wields, I think in an anachronistic manner, he wields a, a shortish um, sort of... It looks like the shaft is aluminum. It honestly does. And it's of some kind of bendy metal that I don't know if it was around at that point, but it behaves much like a waxwood wushu staff does. Now, this fight is just sublime, and part of it takes place within their minds as they're imagining how to beat each other uh, because they're so skilled. I, In terms of choreography, I still stand in awe of it. I just watch it with my jaw on the floor every single time. But this is sort of indicative of that weapon system. The, the Wushu spear is something that I know a little bit less about than the Japanese spear, but you saw this throughout... You, you saw this pattern of spear, the, the slender, flexible spear with a light and fast spearhead on top with the horsehair crest sort of surrounding it. And this varied, I'm sure, from culture to culture. But you see this kind of spear pop up in Korea. You see this kind of spear pop, in, pop up in Laos, Thailand, Vietnam. It, it propagated extremely well. Uh, the Mongols probably used them to great effect now. We're going to move up into the Renaissance at this point. Now, at this point, we're going to get into a couple of distinctions of what the spear becomes when it's used for different purposes. Uh, Like we've said, the spear when it's on a horse becomes a lance. The spear when it's thrown becomes a javelin. The spear when it's used explicitly with both hands and with a very, very, very long shaft is going to be called a pike. Now... I originally thought that a pike was one of these very sophisticated Renaissance weapons that ended up actually being called a halberd. It's sort of a spear and an axe and a pick combination all on the same head because this was the Renaissance. Why should the scientific revolution not extend to weaponry? The pike is basically any spear or pointed polearm weapon that has to be used because it's so long with both hands. Now, during the Renaissance... This form of fighting that used the super long spears came back in vogue, which is interesting because it was the spear that made Alexander the Great famous. A great film to look at for comparison on that point is Alexander, which is kind of a... It's a meandering film that has a lot of problems cinematically, and the actor side of me wants to punch some of the people involved in the production of that film, but that's complete separate discussion to have. It actually has a very decent depiction of the Macedonian phalanx. Now, the Macedonian phalanx was interesting in that it used much longer spears than the tra- than the traditional Greek phalanx. Time for some more water. 
And these spears, oftentimes with a majority of the troops in your little block, had to be wielded with both hands because they were just so goddamn long and unwieldy. These were extending to about eight, nine, ten feet long. These, it's taking the, keep the enemy over there, keep the bad thing over there that we want to stab, keep it over there. <laughs> it's taking that concept to a, it, its absolute maximum. You have spears much longer than this. I don't think there's any person that could have wielded them, much less if the weapon itself would stand up under the strain. I've seen some spears just snap from the sheer weight of the thing on the, on the other end because the shaft is too long. I don't know if this was a problem for the Greeks. I don't know if this was a problem for the Renaissance troops. But during the Renaissance, you had the rebirth of this spear-centric style of fighting. Now, the Swiss became the best known for this, and you can see this. You can see, you can see exactly what Swiss soldiers look like during the Renaissance because the Vatican still has them. The, the the Vatican still employs Swiss guards who wield these halberds a little bit shorter for practical reasons, but they're dressed more or less the same. And the Swiss became known as great mercenaries, the, along with the Germans. The Swiss and Germans became known for producing great mercenary companies who used these very long pike block techniques in sort of like a... Uh, it's like two hedgehogs doing battle. It's... It's That's exactly what it is. It relied on the spear to keep them away. But this also kept you further away from the enemy. It, it, you ended up... I, I can't even imagine what some of these battles must have been like to be scraped along your face or being to or having a, a halberd chopped down on you with such force. I, I can't even imagine. Um, the spear became the platform with which to build up all these different kind of things. You have the bill which is sort of a, a spear-spike-looking weapon with a, with a blade that curved back toward you. And you also had, as I said, the halberd, which is kind of like an, an axe and a spear in a combination, and it's, it's absolutely deadly in the right hand. Now, this style of fighting necessitated a couple of different changes in the ways that people responded to it. I want to get into this further in depth in its own episode, but some soldiers on the battlefields of Renaissance Europe decided to come up with a counter-response to this, and that was to wield six-foot-long swords in an effort to break apart the pike formations and get at the juicy soldier center on the inside. To get at that juicy porcupine center. <laughs> juicy porcupine center, I can't... Oh, wow. Um, I've been doing this a bit long. Um, this is going to be time for a break. Uh, I'll be coming back with an outro, uh, talk the rest of the way uh, across my points about the spear, and hopefully talk about some techniques, talk about uh, some of the modern iterations of the spear. Uh, more Fightcast coming up. Go above and beyond and follow us at Fightcast Podcast and check out our blog and new episodes at fightcastpodcast.com. And we're back from that break. Thanks so much for joining us again. I hope you enjoyed whatever it was that I put in that uh, break. At this point, I haven't decided yet, so I hope it's good. Anyway, so just kind of wrapping things up on the subject, um, this pivotal and most versatile of weapons platforms. I've been thinking about this. I, I thought a lot about this during the break, about what to classify the spear as and and 
I came to this notion of it being a weapons platform. You, you hear this a lot in modern warfare. You hear this a lot being, oh, the A-10 Warthog is a weapons platform. The the F-4 Phantom Jet was a fantastic weapons platform for its day. The battleship Yamato is a great weapons platform. Now, now what is a weapons platform? I, I guess it's it's the delivery system and literally the platform on which the weapons rest because you can change it around depending on what you actually need. The, the, if I, going back to one of my examples, the, the A-10 is, is a fantastic... It, it, it's a modern warplane that was actually built around a gigantic Gatling gun. I, I'm not even exaggerating there. They, they built a gun... And then they were wondering what to do with the gun, because we, we built this gigantic gun. Well, let's strap a plane around it. And that's what they did, and became the A-10 Warthog. But um, as time went on, and this plane started to prove itself in battle, it's, it's, it's an ugly-ass plane if you look at it. It is not a looker, but it is damn effective for what it was designed to do, which was originally as a ground support aircraft. This thing was meant to take out tanks, light armor, and assist infantry on the ground. It does a wonderful job of that. But as a weapons platform, you can change the weapons platform depending on what you actually need it for. Oh, um, are you going in the desert? Are you going to be encountering a whole bunch of light tanks? Uh, obsolete T-72 models, perhaps during the first Gulf War. Well, fantastic. We got depleted uranium rounds for you and um, sur- uh, air-to-surface missiles. Fantastic. Oh, um, in this particular role, we're deploying them to Korea, and so we're going to be wanting to take out a lot of SAM sites before they get operational and um, wreak havoc on the rest of our aircraft. Well, perfect. We can change the weapons load out to that. Oh, uh, you need to burn down a whole air- huge area of forest. Uh, we got just the thing for that, too. Most bombers become this in modern warfare. Because, again, it has to do with the type of payload you can deliver. That's what makes it a versatile weapons platform. So it is with the spear. You change it just a little bit. You can purpose-make it to whatever you need it to be. Because, again, ultimately, as a soldier on the ground, your job is to put the pointy, dangerous thing into the bad person over there. And how best are you going to do that? Let's see. Let's say you want to take a spear and you want to put it into somebody maybe a hundred yards away. What do you do? You make the spear smaller. You make it smaller. You put a really sharp point on the end of it, like a spike, what we would call a bodkin point. And then you put fletching on the end of it. You 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 put in this contraption called a bow, and you and you wind it back and you shoot it, and just maybe if you're good. You can get the pointy end and the other guy 100 yards over there. It's a spear made smaller. Same thing with the javelin, except to a not quite of a huge extent. So what I'm saying is that it, it, the spear itself, the, 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 the staff and the rough amalgamation of pointed bits on the end becomes a blank slate, a blank canvas in which you can paint whatever you need onto it depending on what your needs are. In the hands of the Greek hoplite, it's a fantastic stabbing implement, downwards, with great force, going straight through that Persian wicker armor, whilst you crush them to death with your shields. In the hands of the Romans, you you have a wonderful one-shot, one-kill one weapon that can, if it doesn't actually kill the other guy, 
or wound him, it can at least make part of his weapon system less, less effective. So, kind of want to close with a couple of good films that you could see um, with regards to spears. Uh, you know, that go, that some that take place in antiquity and some that take place closer to now when we stopped using the spear, except now that I think about it, we never actually stopped using the spear, did we? (laughs) Every single person out there who's been through military service, or at least knows somebody who has, knows what a bayonet is. What's a bayonet? A bayonet is the pointy thing you put on the end of your rifle so that when you can't shoot the other dude with the dangerous ball thingy, you can stick the pointy end into somebody at least a meter over there. It's really ingenious. We never stopped using this weapons platform. It's still going strong. Even nowadays, one of the first things that recruits learn when they go to boot camp, no matter really what the branch of military, I mean, if uh, any Navy and Air Force personnel can speak to this, but I know that at least Army and Marines go through a hefty portion of bayonet training. People are still learning to use the spear, even though it's, it's just changed. It's taken a different form. It's taken the form that we need right now. So... Am I going to do subsequent episodes talking about types of pole arms and trying to get a little bit more nitty-gritty in-depth with those? Yeah, probably. But I wanted to introduce this as talking about what a weapon system can be and what it has been over the centuries. But anyways, as I was saying, uh, a few a few good uh, films to see uh, involving good spear fights. As I mentioned, Hero with Jet Li and Donnie Yen. If you want to see a fantastic use of the Wushu Spear in action. You see a little bit of it as well in films like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, as well as, I am blanking on this other one, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and to a lesser extent, House of Flying Daggers. That's the one I'm thinking of. If, you, if you're looking for a little bit more Western, uh, you see a little bit of it um, at use in Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, oh! Oh! <laughs> I, I know I know the other one that I was actually thinking of, not just House of Flying Daggers, but another Jet Li film, which is Fearless, uh, is known in China as Huo Yan Jia. And you're going to have to bear with me as I butcher Chinese pronunciations as well. There's nothing that I'm going to butcher quite so badly as that. So hope you forgive me at this juncture right now. Uh, there's a fantastic fight at the very beginning of that film. Jet Li takes on several uh, foreign martial artists. Uh, it, it takes place in turn of the, turn of the century China. Uh, his the, the hero that he plays, Huo Yan Jia, faces off against Western opponents, uh, a, a few of them. Uh, a Spanish swordsman played by... Uh, a Spanish swordsman played by Anthony DeLongis, who is actually a a former, I, I, I believe he is a, an honorary member of the SAFD, the Society of American Fight Directors, the same governing body of fight uh, stage combatants and fight choreographers that I belong to. Uh, he is a, a fantastic resource on a lot of different weapons, especially the bullwhip. Um, strangely enough, this is he's one of the uh, foremost bullwhip masters in the world, so check out Anthony DeLongis if you can. Uh, SAFD people who I'm talking to know who that is already, but uh, there's Anthony DeLongis, um, a British boxer, played by some unknown gentleman to me, at the very least. Uh, DeLongis is really the only actor that I can recognize by name. And then a German lancer. Uh, you, you get to see Jet Li's Wushu spear versus a, 
a two-handed, about eight-foot-long German lance. And originally, the German lance has the reach advantage on him, but of course, Jet Li gets to use wires, so, you know, he, he wins the fight at the end of the day. But it's it's a fantastic little sequence to pick up of that film. The entire film is worth watching, absolutely, without question. But the fights at the very beginning are what draw me to it every time. I, I sometimes just watch those by themselves. But uh, for the most part, uh, th- those are some uh, films you can check out if you want to showcase some good stage choreography with the spear. If I think of any more, I'll try and put them in the show notes. But I uh, hope you've enjoyed the second episode of Fightcast. Uh, still working out the kinks in this. Uh, in subsequent episodes, I'm going to have St. Mana the Destroyer, or Amanda Celeste Jagger, a uh, fantastic member of the uh, Fearless Comedy Productions out here, uh, who I'm also, which I'm also a part of. Uh, she's going to join me for a lot of the subsequent episodes, and I think it's going to be a lot smoother once I have somebody that I can kind of riff off of, especially. Going to have a couple of guests as well. Uh, I've at least got Matt Alex, also with Fearless Comedy Productions and Vilification Tennis, lined up. And beyond that, we'll see. Uh, we'll see if I can get a couple of SAFD people on, um, perhaps some stage combat choreographers, instructors, as well as martial arts instructors. And... Yeah, going to keep working on that. So thank you very much for joining me for this second episode of Fightcast. Please stay safe and, um, you know, sticking with the pointy end. Thanks for listening. Now go forth and conquer.